This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Hello, and welcome to episode 72 of the Doctor Who Podcast. Season 6 can't be that far away. Right, just as we wait for Matt Smith to grace our screens, we'll take a look at the end of 2010 and the last 7th Doctor trilogy from Big Finish. Strap in, let's go! Yes, hello, and as Tom said, welcome to episode 72. This podcast has been a long time in coming. I've been very, very keen to review these three particular plays that Big Finish released, as you quite rightly say, Tom, at the end of last year. Mm. And I think the reasons as to why I'm so keen to talk about them will uh, will become apparent very, very soon. But just <laughs> before we get stuck into that, we've had more feedback, Tom. We've had more letters concerning the podcast that the three of us weren't really on. <laughs> it's always the way. <laughs> it is. We'll start with an email from Jake Stapleton, who says, In my opinion, the episode 70 of the Doctor Who podcast needed a health warning of some type. I nearly got thrown off the treadmill laughing when I heard the bit about, if I hear one more Dalek sound effect, I will torch your box set. <laughs> all, all joking aside, I really enjoyed the show. Keep up the great work, guys, gals and kids. And Tom, of course, is referring to the song. That's the one piece of that particular show that you did appear in. Um, or should we say your dulcet tones appeared in and um yeah can you take any credit for that particular line um i can't actually it was um the lyrics were written by laura as well as being sung by laura as well as laura putting together the backing track so um as ever all i really did there was turn up drunk and shout down a microphone (laughs) (laughs) well i wish i could shout down a microphone in as tuneful manner as you and uh wasn't that song originally an elton john song and kiki d that's it, um, Elton John and Kiki D, and I think it was quite recently featured in Glee. Um, so, if, frankly, if, if you if you mm. if you ever find yourself feeling a little bit down and you want cheering up, go and get a couple of episodes off Glee. It's great. I think, to be honest, I'll just listen to your song again. <laughs> if oh, I want cool. Cheering up. I can't get through that song without his huge smile on my face. It's uh, <laughs> it's superb. Uh, Richard Thompson's also got in touch and says, "Gents, I am your archetypal long-time listener, first-time writer, and whilst I've come close to providing feedback before, your other halves' efforts on episode seventy have finally pushed me into action. Thank you for sharing so much of yourselves by having your respective families contribute to the most recent podcast." Whilst I have not reached the heady levels of your respective fandom, I was both smiling and wincing in recognition at all of the comments being made about living with and loving a Doctor Who fan as a husband and father. (laughs) I am both (laughs) appreciative and hugely respectful of the time, effort and imagination that goes into making your show, as well as your willingness to put yourselves out there as fans and make the rest of us feel a lot better about ourselves. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, what did I see, Mal? Thank you very much indeed, Richard. It was a, hmm. uh, it was a lot of fun. Just you know, even just writing those silly scripts. Um, <laughs> you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, developing my creative skills there certainly. But not a patch on what you heard from Tom. Not a patch <laughs> on what you heard from the ladies either. It has to be said. Who, incidentally, I don't think are ever going to go near podcasting again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's great. The feedback's really, really positive. I'm, 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 the most important thing I think that we all agree on, probably the only thing we agree on, is that 
that the central message of Doctor Who is about inclusion. And particularly with the new series, we've got um, certainly more females, more children actually reinvigorating the show again. So uh, anything we can do to reflect that, of course we'll do. Perfect. Absolutely. Our last piece of feedback about our April Fool episode is from Brett Miller. Your Partners in Who episode was truly fantastic. I have been wondering when or if you were going to do a show similar to that. And thank you for the song with the Ood cast. The sound of Laura's voice always warms my heart. And Tom's, yours is awesome as well. But you were the afterthought there, Tom. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) As for the comment made about Doctor Who fans can have a partner nowadays, I must be a classic Who fan. I have been single for four years. (laughs) That's okay, though. It's all good. And you guys rock. Keep it up. Sincerely, yours from the Commonwealth member in the middle of you guys. And he puts in brackets Canada. So I think he means geographically there. But but thanks very much, Brett, for your uh, for your piece of feedback there. Ace, thank you again. It's just good. it's great stuff. I'll let Sarah know that everyone's been enjoying the podcast. Brilliant. <laughs> had one more piece of feedback but not about the April Fool episode on this occasion this is about our discussion that the three of us had about Big Finish in general a couple of weeks ago and we've had an email from a doctor Dr Scott Vigai um, who's got more letters after his name than in his name I think looking at his email signature (laughs) anyway he says hi guys I really appreciated your discussion of Big Finish during your discussion, you mentioned there was a seventh Doctor adventure wherein the console room is changed to reflect the eventual eighth Doctor TARDIS. Can you tell me the name of that adventure? I'm slowly building my Big Finish collection and would like to track this one down. And yes, we can tell you what uh, what story that was. That was the very last in the Exiles trilogy, and that was the first time Big Finish decided to produce a set of plays that didn't feature as part of their regular monthly release. Obviously, it was a Sylvester McCoy story, but it also featured Anthony Stewart Head and Isang Chow of the telemovie fame. Whether or not it's one that I would suggest that you go and get, uh, I'd hesitate in recommending it, but it's, it's most memorable for the reasons that we discussed on a show a couple of weeks or so ago. But yeah, it's a very dark story. It's about an hour and it's a single episode. So there's, uh, it's not episodic in nature. But if you want to go and listen to that particular scene, um, then yeah, I suggest you go and pick that up. And I think it was released in about 2002. So quite some time ago. Do you know, though, I hear what you're saying about that trilogy, but um, Excelis being, there are, there are three parts, Excelis Dawns, mm. Excelis Rises, and Excelis Decays. Excelis Dawns is actually a personal favourite of mine, because you've got the fifth Doctor, uh, Peter Davison, becoming the fifth Doctor that we find most often in Big Finish. He's mm. older, he's, he's more tired, and he makes some really quite pleasing references to what he actually thought of meeting his other selves in the five doctors in a very very touching way so big finish is is very much a a subjective thing but i particularly liked uh, excellus dawns and if you want to Mm. find out exactly as james says how the the old tardis became the eighth doctor's tardis you'll find that in excellus decays indeed and we can't talk about excellus dawns without saying it's also the first time katie manning gives her portrayal as iris wild time oh yes (laughs) yes and the script 
is written by Paul Mars, who created Iris Wild Time for the BBC Books many, many years ago, and has most recently brought Tom Baker's Doctor back to life mm. in Hornet's Nest and Demon Quest. So, yes, I would echo that sentiment, Tom. It's well worth going to track down the first play in that trilogy. Anyway, I suppose we should really talk about what we're supposed to be talking about, shouldn't we, Tom? <laughs> let's, yeah. uh, let's move on to some more recent Big Finish in, well, there's no real name for this trilogy, so we'll just say the most recent Seventh Doctor trilogy. That works for me. Well, we're going to start off the trilogy at the beginning by looking at the first in this trilogy, but the last in a very, very long series arc. Now, this story, uh, Project Destiny, was written by Mark Wright and Kavan Scott, both of whom are very, very well steeped in Doctor Who lore. Um, but as I say, this finishes off um, a story about the Forge, about which more later, uh, and continues the story arc from one of the Seventh Doctor's latest companions, Mr. Thomas Hector Schofield, or also known as Hex. No, quite right, Tom. And Kevin Scott and Mark Wright are quite prolific writers for Big Finish. And I think, as you rightly say, this is the conclusion of the Project Trilogy, if mm. you like, which actually started back in, I think, 2000, yeah. um, with a Colin Baker story called Project Twilight, which mm. also linked into State of Decay. So quite an interesting set of references and continuity there. Mm. But I think it was a good decision that Big Finish made to conclude his particular trilogy, because I'm not sure it was envisaged as a set of small stories right from the outset. Mm. You've got to remember Gary Russell was in charge in the early days, and I know that he was responsible for commissioning both Twilight and its sequel, which was Project Lazarus. Mm-hmm. But Project Destiny was only confirmed as a commission, you like, after Nicholas Briggs took over the helm at Big Finish. And I think, despite the story being in place and certainly in the writers' minds for a long time, it was far from definite that this was actually going to come about. Mm-hmm. And I am, for one, as a, as a fan, very pleased that it has materialised and also that it features as the first in a new trilogy which is you know collectively I think is one that I've enjoyed the most in in quite some time Mm. um, particularly the first two thirds but Scott and Wright also have written for other doctors they wrote The Church and the Crown uh, Mm -hmm. that was for the fifth doctor which was you know, pretty much a swashbuckling adventure and laced with comedy. It was another doppelganger story, this time for, for Perry. And their style of writing, I think, does veer on the comedic. So I think if you like a few jokes chucked in, then, yeah, this is the kind of uh, story for you. But let's, let's give a little bit of background here. Um, we've got essentially a return to the setting that we meet Hex in in the harvest, and that was uh, that was a good couple of years or so ago now as well. London is <coughs> deserted, um, very similar, or very reminiscent for me at least of uh, of invasion of the dinosaurs. So I think you can see a couple of um, couple of influences there. But the way the story pans out, yeah, I mean, I I I did enjoy this one. I did enjoy it, and particularly because I was so aware of the backstory with the forge and so on. But um, but what do you think, Tom? If someone wasn't aware of, of the history of this particular 
um, set of plays, would they be able to enjoy Project Destiny in isolation, do you think? Um, I think yes, actually. Um, th- th- there's a, there's a, a really strong uh, setting of the scene going on. So obviously, when the, the TARDIS arrives, it's white. That's always quite strange and confusing. <laughs> um, but the, the soundscape is immediately drawn that it is Dead London, if you've missed out on the play that immediately preceded this, it's it's obvious that there is something very much amiss with Hex. And, and all of the characters get a good introduction. So although I think most Doctor Who fans would have their interest peaked and want to go back to listen to uh, Project Twilight and Project Lazarus, of course I'd recommend doing that, you don't necessarily have had to have heard them to actually get the most out of this. Yes, there are returning characters, um, but everything is put in place for you so that that uh, long-term listeners aren't don't feel patronized but new listeners don't feel excluded either one quick question for you tom mm. um we, we've talked about the forge and how it's you know came about very early on in big finish's life really mm. it's very much for me the forerunner of torchwoods and if i were the writers yeah, yeah. i'd feel slightly aggrieved i think because torchwood is pretty much the forge in you know televisual terms what do you think about that I, do, do you know i kind of agree and i don't think i'm the only person that thinks that as well um, <laughs> um I, 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 I've, but if we if we actually listen to uh, project destiny there are little things like i've done my duty for king and country mm. which turned out way before the tv series returned um there is there is uh, the suggestion that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but if we're thinking about a government-sanctioned paramilitary organisation that operates just beyond the law, well, mm. that could be unit, it could be Torchwood. But to be honest, if I had, if I could take some sort of credit for a strong idea as that, then I'd be quietly quite happy. Um, that said, though, there's more than there's more than just the Torchwood influence. There is the the suggestion of the giant old vampire uh, in the shape of Nimrod as well. We have to be careful about for, for time constraints but I would personally say uh, if anyone wants to th- was thinking about getting into uh, a new Seventh Doctor trilogy this one for me has been the most entertaining but then again I'm a bit biased because I've been really loving Big Finish lately <laughs> Okay, let's move on to the next play, and this is the one that I've been very, very keen to discuss. And before we get into any depth at all about this story, there are going to be spoilers. If you haven't heard A Death in the Family, then you really need to switch off or fast forwards right now, because it's impossible (laughs) to discuss this story without talking about all of the major things that happen in it. So you have been warned. Yes. And if you're still with us... Tom, what do you think about Death in the Family? I think before we start talking about it, I just want to reiterate, there are spoilers in this. There are spoilers in this. Fast forward. Last, last time we talked about Big Finish, Trev uh, mentioned that Big Finish was trying to get very big and very epic. When I think about Project Destiny... It is big. It's epic. It's like a fugue. Just when you think it can't get any more involving or any more emotional, it does just when you think the characters can't develop anymore and just drag you in any further they do and just when you think the trilogy can't top project destiny this begins to it's astonishing without wanting to put too much of too too fine a point on it the single most important thing the thing which should never happen in a doctor who story happens at the end of the first episode (laughs) do i take it tom that you like this story yeah it was all right yeah not bad not bad (laughs) Um, I'm going to put my flag in the ground right now. 
and I'm going to make quite a big call and say this is the best big finish story ever. Oh, now, okay. you hear an awful lot um, of, of kudos being given to some real big finish classics, like Spare Parts, like Jubilee, The Chimes of Midnight, uh, The Holy Terror, you know, the list goes on. And this particular story for me um, hit all the right buttons in the right order and I think it it just comes complete bolt out of the blue because all of those story titles that I mentioned earlier they're quite old we haven't had an absolute modern classic uh, from Big Finish in the last couple of years Hmm. and yeah you've had some very strong stories very strong stories but ones that absolutely blow the opposition out the water have been very very few and far between and I I think we're looking you know five or six years or so since we've seen something as monumental as Death in the Family and for me, yes, I appreciated it because I have listened to all of the other stories that it references and is tied into. Mm. So, yes, I had to listen to it on about three occasions, Mr. Stephen Hall. Thank you. That's six hours of my life uh, gone trying to understand this play. But um, it's, it's, it's so, so worth it. And Trev was saying, as, as you mentioned, one of the strengths and weaknesses of Big Finish is, is that they do make such continuity-heavy stories now, Death in the Family is by far the most continuity-heavy story um, and self-referential uh, to Big Finish's timeline that has ever, ever been produced. And I have to say, it does it so magnificently with every single element really, really hitting it on the head. But I'm gushing. And, you know, I had the pleasure of interviewing Stephen Hall a little while ago, and we'll play that interview for you in a second. And even during the editing process on that interview, I had to edit out all my gushes. And I've interviewed a lot of people. <laughs> and I, I haven't felt any kind of obligation to say, oh, I think your story is wonderful. I think you played that role fantastically. Mm. I couldn't stop myself because yeah. this story is so good. But, Tom, you better come in and say something rather profound. Stop me continuing this, uh, <laughs> this, this, this ball of gush. <laughs> Perfect. OK, well, look, as we mentioned in one of the previous podcasts when we, did, when we reviewed the Aztec, um, that particular story is very much about uh, the Doctor's companion, Barbara. Now, in A Death in the Family, the Doctor is present and or conspicuous by his absence in some of the, in some of the episodes. But this is very much the story of Ace. This is very much the story of Evelyn. And this is very much the story of the companions. Not unlike Turn Left... The story talks about the Doctor's influence on his companions uh, and the importance of him in their lives. It can be argued, without getting too spoilery, that the tragedy of this story is that the story goes on and Ace loses a, a, such a huge amount. It's, I think one of the great things about Big Finish, as we mentioned when we talked about it before, was that the medium allows the actors and characters to develop. And there is huge development here for Ace. Just when you think you've got a handle on Dorothy McShane, yeah, we know her, we know what she's done, ultimately we think we know what's going to happen to her at the end. She changes again, and there's a whole new layer of her devotion, because it is that, to the Doctor that's, re- that's revealed. Similarly, Hex... Is it giving away too much to say that Hex is in this story? Um, Acquits himself beautifully as well. But again, I think the most development here is reserved for the Doctor. When I was lucky enough to interview Sylvester McCoy, I suggested to him that the Doctor had a kind of dark melancholy to him. And nowhere is that more evident than here. This is truly a thousand-year-old man with a very old pair of eyes. Absolutely recommended. 
Uh, completely. And uh, I, I think it's true to say that there's about three or four different story arcs here. Each of the characters go on separate journeys all the time within Big Finish, but mm. it's quite rare that you get three or four of them dealt with at the same time in the same play. Yeah. And again, we, we, we talked a little bit earlier about spoilers. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Seventh Doctor arc here mm-hmm. completely openly. So uh, if you're still with us and you don't want to hear spoilers, then this is your final warning. There are two Doctors in this story. There are two versions of the Seventh Doctor. There is a younger Seventh Doctor, and there is an older, as you say, Tom, more melancholic Doctor. And the way Big Finish have worked this is that you can listen to this play from two perspectives. You can listen to it clearly as part of this trilogy. You've got Project Destiny, Death in the Family, Lurkers at Sunlight Edge. That works perfectly if you're following the current TARDIS team. If you want to follow the the Seventh Doctor and his solo adventures, then you need to listen to Project Lazarus, then A Death in the Family, and then immediately after Death in the Family, you need to listen to Master, just a play called Master. And that little arc for the older Soul Doctor works perfectly as well. Now, I'd like to be able to say that this is something that I've noticed because I'm such a devotee of Big Finish, but I'm afraid it's not. It's something Stephen, the writer, pointed out to me <laughs> uh, when, when we went for a drink and uh, had a talk about his writing process. Uh, but that's the kind of intricate detail that writing for Big Finishes allows fanboys to play with. And uh, I don't think there's any other kind of program or any other kind of franchise that allows people to play with those kind of things that basically casual listeners won't notice Mm. but people who have been listening to this arc and again there's references made to events in this story in thicker than water um also in arrangements for war there are two poor sutton plays there's a reference to it in no man's land it's very very prevalent in uh the release called 45 which was four single stories released to celebrate the 45th anniversary of Doctor Who and Stephen Hall again the writer of Death in the Family has a very very um, relevant story within that release called The Words Lord and we'll talk about the uh, the Word Lord in a second perhaps yeah, yeah. but this is the kind of depth and Tom you've talked in the past about layers have mm. you ever seen a story with as many layers as Death in the Family it's great it's great I mean you know if they call me onion boy but it, it, it was <laughs> it, it was supremely rewarding and I, and I think this is something about Doctor Who in general I mean Big Finish do it incredibly well they fire the imagination they tell you these stories which are rewarding if you look a little bit closer if you do scratch the surface there's so much going on it's not just a story of a trap time traveler and his two friends uh, or in this case his three friends it really is the story of it's the story of beginnings endings the idea and it's a commentary on the nature of stories themselves as well as you mm. rightly say we have the word lord who to me seemed like a very amped up version of that character from star trek q uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, and the riddler who's you know he's who's supremely spoiled self-contained arrogant and worse than that powerful um, but through that through the interact through um, the word lord's interaction with the doctor we see that the doctor's not infallible and we see the aching sadness at this fellow's core which from what i can see is going to be supremely explored um, through season six but to be honest sylvester mccoy maybe back in the days when he was on tv if he'd been allowed to develop he would have got to this point but he right. has the most astonishing oh he's got the most beautiful dark voice he has mm. and he's able to convey the most 
profound grief in the most beautiful way. This is truly an actor acting. I really wish there was something bad I could say about this story. There really isn't. You know? It's a little <laughs> bit too short. <laughs> it is. Um, there is so much in this, and, and, and you've heard listeners, both Tom, I, and, uh, and particularly Trevor, I think, say that some big Finnish releases are too long, and it feels like that they could you know, achieve everything they wanted to quite neatly in, in three episodes. There is so much going on in this play, and it's segmented so nicely into its composite episodes that I wouldn't have objected to the same kind of style had it gone on for another disc. And and, and the thing <laughs> is, you listen to some of the longer Big Finish plays, you listen to Zagreus, you listen to The Next Life, and you think, my God, I wish they were shorter. Um, but where they've absolutely nailed it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's... Well, it's the entirety. The length is absolutely perfect. Go and listen to this play. What I do want to do is pick up on something you just mentioned, Tom, and that's about the word lord. Uh, But before we do, I'm going to hand over to one of our listeners who quite some time ago now sent in some feedback after listening to to Death in the Family. So, Michelle, over to you. Michelle here, high in the mountains of Colorado. A while back on the forum, Trev challenged some of us to explain why we think A Death in the Family is so good. So why do I love this audio? Well, for starters, it has a great villain. The Word Lord's ability to gain and wield power through language makes him particularly threatening and scary. Where the God of Genesis speaks the earth, the stars, and all living creatures into being, the Word Lord does the opposite speaking worlds and beings out of existence. That creates a pretty intense sense of jeopardy for the doctor and his companions. And sure enough, the doctor is only able to contain the word lord for a while at great personal sacrifice. Ian Reddington gives a fantastic performance as nobody no one, arrogant and nasty and energetic and furious. Writer Stephen Hall has given this fundamentally literary being some great lines and Mr. Reddington makes the most of them for a spellbinding performance. This is also a play with beautifully written journeys for each of the companions. For Hex and Ace, we get parallel studies on how traveling with the doctor changes his companions, and not necessarily for the better. Marooned in different places and times, both companions attempt to carry on the work of the doctor. Hex tries to right what he perceives as a wrong by attempting to restore Ailsan's relationship with her mother. Ace tries to live into the doctor's defender-of-the-earth role. Both find themselves in situations and relationships where they just might be able to live happily ever after. Yet ultimately, both deceive or use and abandon their loved ones. Perhaps the seventh doctor's manipulative ways are also part of his legacy. We get two companions who try to carry on the doctor's good work, but with an end-justifies-the-means moral ambiguity. I love the resolution to this story. I like that Ace works out a solution to this very complicated puzzle. I get the sense that she may have traveled with the Doctor longer than any other companion, and it's nice to see her rising to the challenge when she has to go it alone. I found the concept of the Handervale both fascinating and lovely. Immortality through being read into an ever-expanding story that is told and retold. I think there's real meaning in that. After all, isn't that how we keep our loved ones present in our lives once they have passed on? Speaking of death, that brings me to the beautiful denouement. The final scenes with Evelyn were well written and well played. 
I was fighting a big lump in my throat when the doctor spoke of having a calendar like a calendar of birthdays. And Evelyn's final lines about her doctor were dignified and poignant. So, a death in the family offers us an exciting villain, intriguing character studies that don't offer simple solutions, and a glimpse into the bittersweet realms of story, death, and immortality. As soon as I finished listening, I knew I had to listen to it again, soon. Which is about as good a definition of a successful story as I can come up with. Thank you very much for that, Michelle. It's always great to receive audio feedback. Of course, mm. keep it below three minutes and get it on the internet to us. That's fab. Um, James, just before we went to the feedback there, we, uh, I mentioned the word lord. What, what did you make of that character? <laughs> well, I, I touched on that during the interview with Stephen as well. And I, I think he's an incredibly original villain and he wouldn't work in any other medium other than audio. So I think that Stephen taken advantage of the audio medium there in a very, very innovative and brilliant way. But the thing I wanted to talk about is the way he's being portrayed. Now, this is the second story we've heard the word lord in. Mm. The first one is called, cryptically, The Word Lord. <laughs> it's a one-part story, and as I said earlier, is part of the 45 release. And The Word Lord's been played by two Actors, the first of which is Paul Reynolds, who's quite menacing, I think. And I have to say, I think I preferred his portrayal to that of Ian Reddington. And Ian Reddington, of course, is no stranger to, to Doctor Who fans, but uh, I'm not going to mention precisely where you should recognise him from. And the reasons for that will become clear slightly later. But yeah, I just think the character is, is, is a fantastic creation. He's scary, he's funny um you mentioned the word arrogant that is so completely correct but he's arrogant in a way that the master and the rani weren't because he's he's oozing with malevolence as well mm. and i think there are times when you can say that wasn't actually true of anthony ainley's uh, portrayal of the master it was more pantomime rather than menacing mm. and i i just love it brilliant creation and uh, and hats off to stephen hall and on that note will lead straight into the interview and the discussion I had with Stephen in the basement of a pub a couple of months ago. I'm joined right now by Stephen Hall, who is the author of Death in the Family, which is the second story in this Seventh Doctor Ace and Hex trilogy, and has also written another one-parter as part of the 45 compilation in 2008, The Word Lord. Mr. Stephen Hall, welcome to the Doctor Who podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Let's start. Before I just fall over myself and start gushing about Death in the Family <laughs> and how good it is, I, I need to try and gather my thoughts and ask you in a structured fashion, how did this gig come about for you? Well, A Death in the Family kind of led straight on from the word lord really and the word lord was all on account of my now good friend paul wilson i wrote into big finish and said i'd love to write something for you and uh, i think i sent paul a copy of my novel and paul read it and went to alan and nick and basically pestered them until they accepted a synopsis from me and then um, that became the word lord in 45 and from then it was a case of trying to find time when i could come back to mm. do a full-length story and i almost did a paul mcgann but there was just no way we could make the timings work. So eventually I came back for Sylvester, which is um, 
It's good actually. I wanted to come back to those to that TARDIS crew because I think they're my favourite. Certainly, that particular era mm. of the Seventh Doctor for me is certainly one of my favourites now as well. But anyway, um, before we go into general discussions and tangents, already, <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit more about the Word Lord himself. I mean, this is this is a villain of your own making. He is He's quite an ingenious creation as well. Lots of Doctor Who villains have been done and come up with in the past, and people can say, well, he's similar to that one. But do you know what? There isn't a comparison to the Word Lord. So how did you come up with such an original concept? Wordplay is something that I'm just really interested in, and I love looking at words and playing with words and the power of words, and it's, it's what I do in my writing anyway. And obviously, as a, as a big Doctor Who fan, right from being a child, kind of always ticking away in the back of your head is if I got to do Doctor Who, who would be my villain? What kind of villain would I make? Mm. And the Word Lord was always something that I thought, yeah, was was kind of different, but but would but would still fit into that Doctor Who universe in a way that was not quite the way we'd seen anything quite fit into it before, but but would sort of play against the Doctor in a really interesting, unusual way for being a lot like the Doctor, but you know, using almost the Doctor's great power of words to a whole new level and then just seeing how the Doctor copes with being massively outgunned in that way. And and was it a, a conscious decision thinking, well, the media here for this story is going to be audio, the spoken word is going to be the biggest weapon? Was that a conscious decision of yours? Yeah, absolutely. Was, yeah. yeah. Um, that's one of the things I always try and think. What media is it going to be in? How do you use that media the best? And also, you know, it makes the whole it makes the whole story a kind of a playground for the characters, mm. and especially a character like the Word Lord. Everything in the story is word and sound, so almost it's his playing field. You know, the Doctor has to play away <laughs> to every time he fights the Word Lord. Okay, well, let's um, get into the meaty questions. The one that I've been wanting to ask you ever since I knew I was going to interview you: Death in the Family. Yeah. Now, listening to this story, I have to say, absolutely blew me away. But th- there are reasons as to why I think this is a superb story, and. In a fan's mind, when you try and think how do these stories come into being, you assume that someone comes up with an idea, then that idea grows, and then it gets pitched to big finish. Now, within Death in the Family, you've got about six different ideas. Yeah, at least, yeah. And and rather than just select one or two, it, it feels, from the listener's perspective, as if we just said, no, let's put everything in it. And uh, we'll go through those particular strands in a minute. But I'm interested in, in, in the process. Did you just get hit with all of these ideas at once? And uh, or was it the story that came to your mind first? Something that I, I consciously wanted to do was to put as much in it as I actually could. Because I think, you know, two hours is a long time. To run a single story over two hours is... You know, it's a lot of it's a lot of dramatic space you have to fill, and I think you have to be doubly aware of that if it's an audio story. And so, I really wanted every minute to be full of something interesting, and I like the idea of each episode being quite different in tone as well, and and taking you in directions you hadn't quite thought of. Um, as to how it came about, Alan originally emailed me, and he wanted kind of, I guess you could say, a bridging story, which tied up Project Destiny and dealt with the fractured TARDIS crew and put them together in some sort of way to send them back off on their travels again. And the original idea was we were going to have four one-part stories, one for each of the characters and then one all together that brought them back and somehow started to build bridges a little bit. So right from the beginning I was thinking of this as, as different stories with one big story. And then I guess I just started to push a little bit for different things I'd like to do, and they kept saying, 
okay and they kept saying okay and so i pushed for something else and i put in the original synopsis to alan and he sent this email back saying um my brain is on fire i think and i think i love it but i need to speak to nick before we can commission something as unusual as this mm. and i'm just really grateful they had the faith in me to let me do it actually and to to basically hand over what's probably a lot of people's favorite arc they've ever done and, and let me let me tie it up it was a big honor really well there's one arc tied up here there's three <laughs> others i mean i mean just to put that kind of um, continuity into context the the first play in this trilogy was a conclusion to another trilogy in its own right that of the forge uh, and along with nimrod so how how much research did you put into the backstory of all of the arcs that you either deal with or touch within death and the family as much as I could, I listened to everything, and I talked to Mark and Cav, who wrote the project stories quite a lot. In fact, I had them, we swapped scripts quite a little, because it was useful for me to see what they were doing, and it was really useful for me to have them look at what I was doing, because I didn't want to... I didn't want to do anything they weren't happy with, because a lot of, a lot of the stuff for Death in the Family is built on is actually the great work that Mark and Kev have done over the years and I, I wanted to make sure that they were happy with what I was doing and also that they could point out any massive errors I was making with, 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 their, uh, with their continuity. And did you make any Matthews errors for their continuity? <laughs> no, I don't think so. They sent me an email at one point that said, you know London's evacuated at this point, but, uh, but, but that was more that I was redrafting and redrafting and I think the explanation as to why London was no longer completely empty had been put to one side to go back in another draft and so you know in that mad flurry of papers that comes from writing something but they were uh, really lovely really great and really supportive and I mean a death couldn't have worked without everyone who'd been involved um, in, in the previous stories and, and everyone at Big Finish just really helping me get it right, I guess, because th there's so much going into that story. So I just yeah. needed, I needed yeah. so much from everyone else. No, I can imagine, especially given that the project story started and I, I haven't got the precise date. But I think it's got 2000? Be, yeah, it, first I, one. I was thinking about eight or nine years ago, yeah. I have to say. So having to revisit everything that's been set up because, of course, you've got the character of Cassie there as well, who features quite quite significantly despite not being in your story um very important to the plot anyway so anyway let's get back to those different strands <laughs> and again if you haven't listened to death in the family this is certainly going to whet your appetite i think right the doctor dies he does and he really dies yep he doesn't have a slight pause in his time stream or anything he dies he's not in a regenerative coma no he's dead yep okay Go one on. thing it's a multi-doctor story. It is. As well. I don't know whether I should list off all of the other bits and pieces as well, but, but certainly, was this your opening gambit when, uh, when you spoke to Alan? Oh, I'm going to kill the doctor properly this time. It, it evolved a little organically in that for things I wanted to do with Ace and Hex, and I think things that we actually needed to do with Hex after Project Destiny, and also things that I wanted to do with Ace, it became apparent that those stories couldn't be told properly if the Doctor was still around. Mm. Because the Doctor's such a large character that everyone falls into line behind him. So I was coming up with all kinds of ideas as to how we could remove him a little and, and give the characters some space. The problem with removing the Doctor is we always, we always know he's going to come back. <laughs> you know, and, the, and more importantly, the characters, his companions, know he's going to come back. If the Doctor has to go and do some big mission somewhere, they know mm. it's temporary. Mm. So I emailed Alan, and, and the email was really short, and it just said, 
I could just kill him, dot, 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 question mark. <laughs> and an email came back saying, okay, if you think you can kill him and find a, a good reason that he comes back to life, a really good reason, then you can. And I just sat there and thought, I'm going to kill the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> that would have made an interesting tweet, I think, because <laughs> no one would have believed you. I think my tweet said something like, I'm, I've just been given permission to do something that you will never believe. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get anyone come anywhere close in terms of uh, guessing? I think there were a few guesses, but they weren't as epic as what it actually was. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, the whole story is epic, and I think you've um, you summarised it nicely, actually. And I think the first episode, you can almost say, is the most comparable to a normal opening story. The, the only difference being is that the Doctor saves the day and loses his life at the end of the first episode. And from then on in, it kicks off big time. How did you feel writing for Maggie Stables, uh, Evelyn's character? This is the first seventh Doctor story she starred in. How did I feel about it? I, I'd had a bit more practice with writing for the Seventh Doctor and Ace and Hex, and I think I had their banter down, but I made a conscious effort to listen to as much as I could of Maggie's stuff and to try and get the voice right, because the last thing you want to do is bring back a well-loved character and they don't sound like them. So I did everything I could to try and get the voice right. And I mean, there were some days I just sat, maybe looked at maybe 10 pages of Maggie's dialogue and just tried to get Evelyn right mm. because this is a big, big story for her. And, and you know, these things matter. It's got to be right. And, uh, you know, if it works, it's, it's because I, I've put everything I had into trying to get those characters on the page as best I could. Mm. And then, of course, when the actors come in, they know those characters so well that if the dialogue's written well, they just, they just fly with it. Wow. I'm, I'm assuming you've seen some of the feedback within fandom, and I think that's pretty much advocates uh, everything you've done, and you certainly got it right, no question there. But um, you must have, I mean, you said this a little bit just before we started recording, you said you weren't too sure how fandom was going to react to such a pivotal and new kind of Doctor Who story. I think there's an accepted wisdom that Doctor Who fans are very conservative in what they like, but if you look at the popular stories that fans like that's proved not really to be the Absolutely case right. yeah. I mean if you look at Big Finish stories like The Master stories like Davros mm -hmm. Chimes of Midnight those are all really unusual stories and if you look at the TV show you know Genesis of the Daleks very you know format changing stories mm -hmm. and so I was I, I wouldn't say I wasn't apprehensive because because apart from everything else, I know how much people care about these characters and you don't want, you never want to write something that people, featuring characters that people love that they don't enjoy. That's a horrible thing to ever do. But at the same time, I was sort of quietly wanting to test this theory that what fans actually like is, is writers being brave and trying things, but trying things in a way that is, is honest for the characters above all else. That must have been a heck of a process going into writing a Doctor Who script. I think it's a heck of a process writing a Doctor Who story at all at any stage of any writer's career because you're playing with, you know, the BBC's crown jewels essentially. But when you've got such a passionate fandom who are watching everything you do and Absolutely. I put to point out if you if, if you put um, a, a word in a character's uh, line that doesn't sound right, 
they'll go online and post about it. Yeah. I, I, it's honestly true that I have not seen one negative view about death in the family at this point. So, uh, and I haven't been able to say that to any other big Finnish writers. <laughs> like, congratulations. I'm so, so pleased. I can't tell you. It's, it's wonderful. I, when I first heard the story, I was really pleased with it. And I was, I was happy with the script. Me and, me and um, Alan worked really hard to get the script right. And I, I monopolized a lot of his time to, to, to make sure that, that I had things right. And then Ken and the guys at Big Finish and the actors. And, you know, the performances, Sophie's astonishing in it. And Ian Reddington's brilliant. And I just couldn't have asked actually for a better um, actualization of what I tried to do. And it's thrilling. Did you have any actors in mind when you were writing? I, I know you won't necessarily, I mean, you might have had Tom Cruise in mind for the word little tool knows, but did you hear someone's voice when you were writing the character's lines at all? And how did it compare to the actual actors who were cast? It's funny, I read something that Russell wrote, uh, Russell T. Davis, and he said that um, you always write the Doctor the same way and it's the actor that will bring a different performance. Mm. And I did the exact same thing. He's written exactly the same way as he was in The Word Lord and in A Death in the Family, but two very different actors have interpreted it in different ways and, and brought that difference. And I think as a writer, you have to write the character in the same way because then we can see that his opinions and his, his, his way of going about things is similar, but his whole demeanour is different. Yeah. What next for the word, Lord? Now, I know you deal with him pretty conclusively, <laughs> yeah, but come on, we all know that Big Finish are going to be mad not to bring such an innovative guy back, so... What's next in your mind for him? Would you believe me if I said I have no plans for him? No. <laughs> in all honesty, I would be really uncomfortable doing anything that spoiled the end of a death in the family. I think, again, going back to the characters, taking the characters to the places they are at the end of that story, it would, it would undo a lot of what was good about the story. Mm for him to get up again at the end of that story and go, ha ha, but I'm not really no, dead, Doctor. Yeah. But I would say it's written in such a way that that story takes place at the end of his timeline and it hints at a lot of other confrontations with the Doctor before that. Yes, it does. And there's also a few things written into A Death in the Family, which I don't think anyone have noticed yet, which actually allow maybe a few little things to happen. As far as I'm concerned, I mean... Again, this is the word Lord is now um, belongs to Nick and Alan, and at the end of the day, yeah. if they want to do something with him, they can, you know, with my blessing. But as far as me working with the word Lord, I'd be very sad to see any stories taking place after the death in the family. And I think you're right. It's it's so monumental in so many different ways, and I'm I'm, I'm conscious not to give the entire story away to the listeners, <laughs> but uh, but I think you're right. I can't think of another occasion whereby a story would be challenged so much retrospectively if someone came in and did something just to bring the character back. But, yeah. but I hear what you say, Stephen. Thank you very much. <laughs> so what next, in, in more general terms, um, what next for you? Have you got any more big finish work plans? I am, at the moment, I'm mainly concentrating on finishing my second novel, which is taking up a lot of my time. I'd love to come back and do some more big finish. I am sure I will do. There's nothing penciled in yet, I'm afraid to say. But I had such a great time on A Death in the Family, and I love working with him. And I think uh, Alan Barnes is such a stunningly good scriptwriter, actually, in all honesty, that I, I, I'd come back just to work with the guy again. So I will be back, but, but there's nothing 
There's nothing committed to paper yet, and certainly nothing I could probably say on radio. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, thank you very much indeed, just for a brief time with you today. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks. Um, a lot of the people who are involved in making Doctor Who seem to be incredibly giving and incredibly uh, willing to discuss this thing that they enjoy so much. It, mm. it, it just so happens that they are talented enough and gifted enough to be creating content for the show. But I'm always astonished by how generous in terms of time, and I think in Stephen's case, in terms of access, and uh, even, I think he's even sought out some gifts for us, hasn't he? Oh, he's, he's been absolutely brilliant. And uh, Stephen, we need to say thank you very much indeed for not just the interview, but as Tom says, being so generous with your time. Um, Yes, Stephen is uh, an author. He's published a book called The Raw Shark Texts. You can pick it up. It's widely available uh, online and elsewhere. But we have, Tom, we have a first edition. And not just is it a first edition, Stephen signed it as well for us to give away as a prize. Nobody tells me about this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you see, what I try and do is get two of every prize and keep one, you see. So oh, I, see. I don't really want to tell you or Trevor about it. <laughs> right, right. But unfortunately, on this occasion, Stephen is actually going to be sending this prize directly uh, to, our, to our winner. Excellent. The question, the question you need to answer is, Ian Reddington plays the word lord in Death in the Family. What TV story... Did Ian Reddington appear in during Sylvester McCoy's TV tenure? And you need to just send us an email to feedback at the Doctor Who Podcast.com and in the subject title, if you can just put Stephen Hall competition. And we'll keep that open for a couple of weeks and we'll announce the winner on a future edition of the Doctor Who Podcast. Just a couple of things that I want to mention before we move on to the third play in this trilogy. Tom, can you hear this? Yeah, what's that? That is the Maiden edition of GQ. Oh, the one with me on the cover, yes. It's the one with you on the cover, Tom, yeah. And on page 105, (laughs) there's a column all about Stephen Hall. And it talks about his novel, it talks about how he got into writing and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. So congratulations, Stephen, on your your appearance in GQ. And... um, the picture's not big enough, but apart from that, I think it's a really, really big achievement getting into GQ. Excellent. And you can follow Stephen. He's on Twitter. He's very happy to discuss his work. He's, uh, he's, uh, his handle is at StephenHA11. Cool. I think that's because Stephen Hall was taken, but I'll see what you did there, Stephen. Anyway, let's move on, Tom, to the third play in this trilogy, Lurkers at Sunlight's Edge. Hmm. <laughs> final play in the trilogy is, as James says, called The Lurkers at Sunlight's Edge. And interestingly, where the trilogy opened with a big bang in Project Destiny, it seems to end with a very sinister whisper. Now, Mm. there's been character development going on all the way through this three-story arc, all the way through this trilogy. Um, And certainly here, spoiler alert, Hex gets given an awful lot more oomph and fight and backbone than we've seen from him previously. Um, Also, Given the the wintry nature of the setting of the story, it's very easy to get pulled in. James, what did you make of this one? Okay, now first of all, I think it would have been hard for any particular play to follow Death in the Family, particularly 
because I appreciated Death in the Family so much. I didn't like this. Okay. I think that's the only way that I can say it. It's written by a chap called Marty Ross, who is a relative newcomer to Big Finish. He has written one companion chronicle for Fraser Hines to read. And that's called Knight's Black Agents. And whereas that particular play was set predominantly on the Scottish moors, Lurkers is set in, was it the South Pole, I think? Mm. Yeah, and so you've got two very different soundscapes. And the Scottish moor I bought completely. I'm afraid I didn't uh, within Lurkers. It, it actually sounded a little bit echoey, and I would have thought the last thing, the South Pole, would have sounded is echoey. And it, it's actually the second play that I can think of that's been set in a kind of snowy environment, Land of the Dead, which was only the fourth big finished play, was also set in the Arctic. And I think that achieved a much more convincing soundscape. But uh, but that aside, the actual story itself I found, sorry, thoroughly unengaging. And the characters of, of, of the Doctor, Ace and Heck, seem to have completely forgotten about the monumental events that have literally just happened, and they really are supposed to have just happened. They've, they've taken off in a TARDIS in, at the end of Death in the Family, and they've, they've turned up here. And I, I just felt very, very let down. Um, and I think that feeling was exacerbated because of how much I was looking forward to how... Ace, Hex and the Doctor get over and move on after the drastic, drastic events in a preceding play. I, I see what you mean. It might just be that the two stories that preceded are so incredibly strong. As you rightly say, anything that followed them may have had any shortcomings brought into sharp relief. Um, mm. Lurkers, as I might say, isn't bad. It's it's a great comment on um, the work of H.P. Lovecraft. It's got so it's got a very uh, a very a quite individualised performance from Michael Brandon, who viewers of the TV series will remember uh, from David Tennant's last few stories, mm. but. I think you're right. Because of the strength of the first two parts of the trilogy, um, that this is acceptable, that this is good, is really maybe not quite good enough. I mean, it, it's. Mm. And I think if I'd heard it any other time, as opposed to just after A Death in the Family, I'd probably think a bit more of it. But, but you're yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to excuse it too much. Um, so I'm probably going just a slight step ahead of you there. And I think I'd say. Even if I hadn't heard Death in a Family, I would have considered this particular play to be some way short of, of Big Finish's usual standards. And it reminds me a little bit of the kind of plays that we got after Big Finish stopped doing the seasons um, of the McGann's plays within the main range and started releasing, you know, the odd Paul McGann play every now and again. And and some of those plays were very, very so-so, instantly forgettable, quite enjoyable perhaps when you're listening to it. But, you know, to this day, I still haven't gone back and listened to, to Time Works, for example, or Care Droyer. I just can't summon up the motivation to do it. And in all honesty, I was looking at my watch halfway through episode one of Lurkers and was thinking, I really, really hope this gets better. Mm. And um, I, I just feel, well, my, my pet theory is that I feel this play was brought in as a replacement for something else that uh, must have fallen through at the last moment because it's just so different and there's no way that Big Finish um, can be unaware of the fact that this isn't a conclusion to a trilogy it's just a regular story put on the end of the first two parts of a trilogy do you know but do you know what though thinking back to it 
There is something in this which, which I think is actually quite, quite important and, and resonates very, very well. One of the things about this, about this story is that it does play with the notion of what a monster actually is. Who, who are the monsters in, in, in a Doctor Who story? For, in, for instance, thinking back to it, I seem to remember that the biggest monsters in this particular story weren't the aliens who were frankly just doing their jobs. It was really more the, the big monsters were the humans who were trying to get to um, the underlying threat, frankly. Um, and that, I think, to, you know, just, to have, just to have my imagination pulled about and, to- and toyed with in that way, because that, you know, that payoff only, only comes at the end of episode four, was, mm. b- was perhaps, alongside Hex's um, showing of steel, if you like, probably the most rewarding thing about it. So I wouldn't write off completely, but as you say, it's probably not, for me anyway, the positioning of it at the end of these, after these two stories, or what highlights the fact that it's not as strong, perhaps, as the first two. But that said, there is a really strong idea in the middle of it. It's just unfortunate that it had to be expressed after such an emotional roller coaster with the other parts of the trilogy. Well, I think that rounds off our review of the most recent McCoy trilogy quite nicely, Tom. And uh, I think it's probably no surprise um, for me to say that my favourite of the three plays was A Death in the Family. How yeah. about you? <laughs> um, it's all, you know, it's a close run thing between A Death in the Family and Project Destiny. Uh, because, oh, oh, um, my favourite <laughs> was Project Family there. <laughs> Project Family, okay, that is probably the most diplomatic response I have ever heard from you, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) But I would agree that the first two plays in this trilogy are by far the strongest, and I would certainly suggest getting hold of both of those two, both Project Destiny and Death in the Family. You will enjoy it more if you are familiar with the backstory. It's not essential, as we said, but you will definitely gain enjoyment on a different level. Mm. Last thing to say before we move on is don't forget to send your competition entries. We want to know which story Ian Reddington appeared in during Sylvester McCoy's tenure as the Doctor on telly. And you stand a chance of winning a signed first edition of Stephen Hall's very successful debut novel that uh, that was published a few years or so ago. Is it Tom and the Rani? Yes. No. You've now spoiled the competition. No, it's not time, Alorani. There you are. You can have that as a clue if you need one, listeners. <laughs> you now can discount one of the very many Sylvester McCoy stories. <laughs> anyway, what have we got coming up next time, Tom? Okay, well, the clock ticks closer to zero. It's nearly time for Blast Off. Season six is so close you can almost touch it. So it would be wrong of us not to start looking at what's coming in season six, listening to the interviews, looking at the trailers, um, Mm. making up the predictions, just to make sure that the next time Trev and James wind up in LA, that they are indeed wearing Perry costumes. (laughs) So in the next podcast, we will be looking at the great approaching fire that is season six. Indeed, and that is something that I am really looking forward to. Tom, as the end credits roll, mm. let's just have a quick chat about that magnificent trailer that's been uh, been on TV. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that Christopher Eccleston's TARDIS in the trailer? It is, it is. It's definitely the Coral TARDIS. And I think, and one of the things I think is it could be That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. 
If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.